welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Let us start with the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Well, hi everyone, my name is L.A. And I'm recovering from lost by God's grace <clears throat> since October 30th, 1989, when I walked into my first essay meeting. Yeah, it's, you, you blink your eyes and 30 years go by and you wonder what all has happened. And yet I think about this and the absolutely radical change that's taken place in my life is everything that this program has promised, but I didn't start out by believing it. Where did I start out? Two weeks before I came into my first essay meeting, I was curled up in a little ball in my apartment, barely functioning, could hardly eat, could hardly speak, couldn't work. And I thought to myself, this is what they mean when they say a person cracked up. I felt like I was barely hanging on to any kind of sanity. And I thought, this is it. I don't know how much further down I can go. So that was the culmination of, gosh, I was 34 at the time. <clears throat> so however many years, decades of, of progressive failure due to lust. I remember feeling what I now understand as lust even as early as three years old. I had this feeling when my my mom's girlfriend's husband, Uncle John, was painting our house. And I saw him up there and I thought, oh, I wanna be him. And I felt that same sensation in my chest and I just wanted something, I wanted that. And I didn't know how to get it. 
that started a lifelong effort to be somebody else, to assimilate the traits, the physical attributes, the spiritual attributes, the personalities of, of other people, of other men. And I, when I was a kid, I would read biographies and I would become the people, at least in my head I would. I remember uh, I read a biography about Ludwig von Beethoven because I loved classical music as a kid. And Beethoven went deaf and composed many of his greatest works when he was absolutely deaf. And my mother tells me that I went deaf for like a week and I wouldn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything anyone said. So this was the extent now looking back on the degree to which I wanted to just escape my life and become someone else. Thank God I didn't get stuck there in these personalities, but I think really the more extreme form of this can be that you just develop these personalities and switch between them, I guess. <clears throat> As I got older, a little older, I discovered masturbation accidentally. But this was right around the time that my brother and I had discovered pornography. And this was a, a combustible combination. Like many of us, I just couldn't stop. Thought, well, I'm gonna spend every waking moment just wanting this to get this pleasure. And that's what I did. I never thought for a moment, what do the other people in the house think I'm doing? Where do they think I am? Where did I disappear to? It never occurred to me. So this is how things uh, developed in my life. Completely addicted to pornography and masturbation by the age of nine or 10. But I also had confusion because I would want to be my friends. I would want their lives. I'd want their families. I didn't want what I had. I wanted to escape whatever I had. The members of my family, the, the, the home I grew up in. And this just became where I lived every day. <clears throat> As the hormones began to rage, I started to sexualize some of these feelings. I also had obsessions about girls and they were more romantic obsessions and you know I'd want to walk them home from school <clears throat> but they were different with the boys. I wanted to become them. So this confusion about my identity, really it was the fact that I just didn't want to be me, so I wanted to be anybody. I wanted to merge with anyone or become anyone that I could uh, embrace. This became more and more deeply rooted in me. So by the age of 15, and this was during the sexual revolution period where you know, everybody was experimenting with all kinds of ideas and lifestyles, I thought, hmm, well, maybe I'm gay. 
So I told my brother, I said, you know, I think I'm gay. Besides which, my brother's friend who had decided he was gay and come out of the closet, so to speak, um, told me he thought I, I might be gay. So I thought, well, that's probably it. Maybe that's why I want to become these boys. And my brother said, well, you know, it's okay. You know, we're still hanging out. Everything is fine. <clears throat> I hadn't done anything physically with anybody else by this time, but uh, I thought about it. And, and I noticed when I would look at pornography, I would look at both the men and the women. <clears throat> but within a year, I just kind of, I didn't like this idea. And I had a girlfriend in high school. Just turn this off here. I had a girlfriend in high school. And so the summer before, between high school and college, on one weekend, we became intimate. This was so uh, shocking for me, I guess because it just sort of happened that uh, the same weekend I got in my car and drove to a mall and I found a restroom and met a person who then took me to a, another part of the mall and we acted out. But he turned on his heels and he walked away within a few minutes as soon as it was over. And I screamed at him. I said, where are you going? Get back here. And he just kept walking. I never even knew his name. And I said, oh, so that's the way this is. And something in me just died. My heart just grew cold. And I thought, okay, so this is what getting this pleasure is going to mean no feelings no humanity pure base uh, instincts and i'm not sure all those years that ever awoke again that part of my heart that just shut down stayed shut down but it took a lot of effort to keep it shut and a lot of lust and a lot of these similar kinds of encounters. And predictably, it became super addictive. Could not stop. Lived to lust over and over again. Similar kinds of public places, parks, restrooms, bus stations, really anywhere. And um, I thought, is the rest of the world doing this like I am? <laughs> am I living? In, is this really, you know, I was having these sort of touchdown moments, like, am I really here? Or is this, am I going to wake up out of this nightmare one day and go, oh, this is over now. But it never, I, I kept waking up and kept wanting to do it. So... <clears throat> It continued like this and got worse and worse. Consequences, being in police chases, being uh, uh, 
things that happened, you know, to that are on my permanent record. Um, thank God, not for sex crimes, but for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Ten visits to the uh, VD clinics, always with something. So I treated myself like it, a rag. No concern for self. And I saw that the people I was merging with also had no concern for self. So we were all going to empty wells, making things much worse for ourselves. But the only way to be free of it was to do it. And that is one of the most true statements in our literature. At least it's it the way my life is shaking up. So... People around me were telling me, you know, what, why don't you accept yourself? Why don't you, this is like years later, like 10 years after the first time I'd come out of the closet and then come back in. So why don't you just accept yourself that you're gay? I said, well, I tried that. That doesn't fit me. I don't feel that way. I think, I mean, yes, I, I've got these issues with wanting to merge with the masculine but I don't feel, I don't identify with this uh, lifestyle or and all the other attributes of it. But I also felt like I didn't really know where I belonged. And I thought, well, maybe I belong here. So I gave it a shot and I entered the gay lifestyle. That was after I had tried one relationship where I actually attempted to talk to a person at one of these acting out places instead of acting out. And um, he said, yeah, I'd love to talk. So we talked for three hours that first day. And then the next day we stayed in touch. We, we talked again. And I thought, I don't want to act out. I want to talk. Well, this ended up being a three-year quote-unquote relationship, which I never really thought was a, a special relationship. I guess I never really fully yielded to it. He did. He thought that and took me to his family in the Midwest, and I met his mom. And, but I didn't really want to move in that direction myself. It was after this that I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give this a shot. And I went into the gay lifestyle joined a gay church, joined the organizations, talked myself into to participating in the protests. And um, the more I did this, the angrier I got. I had anger in me, but it made me angrier. I even one point thought, I'm going to devote my life to this cause because it's not fair. This world is not fair to us, and I need to do my part. But I could tell that this was another attempt to take on a persona because I really didn't feel like I would look at the situation and go, this really doesn't make sense to me intuitively, even biologically, but beyond that, I just felt like we were all trying to be something. 
this was my own view on it. I don't, I don't claim anybody else felt this way, but that was my perception anyway. We're all trying really hard. So tried another relationship. It was a brief one, completely lust-based. And uh, I just shudder when I think about that one because there was really nothing there. We were two empty shells. But the third one, and these are all people that I met in acting out places. The third one was with a priest. And I thought, hmm, well, this is confusing. For me, it's confusing, but for him, I can imagine it's very confusing. And just a really nice person, um, but who went through a lot because he'd gone through sexual abuse uh, for many years and was in therapy. He was discerning what he wanted to do about his priesthood, about uh, disclosing what had happened to him. <clears throat> so he went to a treatment center and during family week, he invited me to come along with his parents and members of his family. And that's when it all came out about what had happened within his family and like who I was and how I fit into the picture. They make you go to your own meetings, even if you're there on family week. And there I discovered for the first time that I myself was an addict. I was shocked. <clears throat> Never did I ever put the pieces together that what I was doing was manifesting a very serious addiction. So after I came back from that treatment center, he came back a week later and basically said, his therapist were telling him he needs to get out of this relationship. He needs to discern what he wants to do about being a priest. <clears throat> and I went into a tailspin. And that tailspin ended up with me feeling like I couldn't eat or, or work or do much and just crawled up essentially on my couch. <clears throat> At the end of that two weeks, I remembered that there was a meeting at, at this uh, place in Washington, D.C. at a church in the basement. So I managed to go there. And that is the turning point of my life, no question. <clears throat> I, it was one of these where you remember where everybody was sitting, who was, who was the leader of the meeting, you know, almost what people were wearing certainly who was there at that time. And that began a process of melting this iceberg inside me and opening up in a way that I could never imagine doing in front of other people because I saw them doing it. And they were telling these stories that were not so much so different from mine, but they had peace they were even smiling and even, I wouldn't say cracking jokes, but they weren't where I was. They weren't on the couch, curled up in a little ball. They may have been there, but somehow or other they'd made it here. They felt comfortable here. They found refuge here and healing. So that was my start in SA. That was in 1989. The program was very small back then it had, and we had 12 meetings. Some people, for some people, 12 meetings is great, but 12 meetings in Washington, D.C. 
And um, I went to just about all of them. I really threw myself in. But I discovered that there was one little problem with this fellowship, and that was that sobriety definition. Because it said to people like me, you're an asterisk. You're in this other category. There is no marriage for you. There is no sex for outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Actually, that, that was not clarified at that time. It just said no sex outside of marriage. And everybody understood what marriage was. So for me, I was looking at a life of either I was going to get married, which I thought was just out of the question, or I was going to be celibate. Now, I wasn't really intending, I didn't, I didn't have anybody I wanted to be in a relationship with, but I just thought in general, this is just absolutely unfair. And so I latched onto that anger because I just spent four years in the protests. So now I could carry the protests, protests into SA. And I did. And I did, especially at the international conventions. I would get up there on Sunday mornings, on, on the Sunday morning during the open mic, and I would rail against this fellowship, saying, we need it just as much as you do. Don't you know we, we've got to get sober like you are, but why are you closing us off from the possibility of, of having what you have? And my, my beef was especially was with Roy. I met Roy at, that, at the, it was the Nashville 1990 convention, and I thought, ah, he's the culprit, because I was looking for somebody to blame, so I blamed him. And uh, he took an interest in me, but I was angry at him, and I, I don't even think I hit it. But he told me, get sober, work your steps, and watch what God does. Get sober, work your steps, and watch what God does. I felt patronized. I felt kind of dismissed. Like, you know, just go do your homework, come back, and then, you know, show me how you did. <clears throat> but he, he didn't say that. He said, watch what God does. He didn't say perform. He said, open yourself up to the God that came down in 1935, that fire that came down. I didn't put all of this together at the time. I was too angry. But after another international convention, I can't remember where the second one was, something started to happen. Somebody started praying for me without my permission. That was the first thing. <laughs> but uh, he started to invite me to uh, services at his church, particular kind of service for healing. And I had been very against God when I first came in. I said, you know, if the, God, if you exist, you really, you, you really screwed up my life. And, you know, thanks a lot. But, uh, you know, I don't, want, I don't want any part of you. And I thought, well, I just want to get sober and get out. But suddenly, I was, I was watching other people really take this God thing seriously and thinking, am I missing something? It turns out I was. So 
I started going to these healing masses. And one day, something hit me. I don't know what it was. But uh, I got down on my knees. And I said, I need this. I need you. I need healing. That was another turning point in my life. But then I read a book. It was given to me, a very short book, which explained to me my life. It was not a conference-approved essay book, although I identified hugely with the white book. But this book helped me understand what this drive was that I had since the age of three, or maybe even before, probably before now, now that I think about it, which was that I was seeking the masculine because I was a boy and boys need to bond with the masculine. Girls need to bond with the feminine. That's the way God designed us. And something happened along the way with me that that process got interrupted. And I knew it did. I can almost pinpoint points at which I remember at the age of three years old, Something happened in our family. It was, it was awful. And I thought, I said, I am on my own. I have no parents. I can't, can't even come, come near them because they, I said, they're crazy. I live in a crazy house. I'm on my own. I've got to raise myself. And that's when I emotionally froze. And I went into hypervigilance into survival mode, and I realized I was in survival mode since that, that moment. Some people call that a vow. I call it basically buying a lie, the lie that I was, all on, I was on my own, and that's the way I lived. Didn't listen to anybody <clears throat> and um, lived in my own world, basically, and then escaped my world by be trying to become other people in my mind. Well, this book was so hopeful for me because it basically said, with God's help, this process can, can be picked up and continued. And suddenly I started to notice little boys that seem to be in the middle of this process where their fathers or their father figures or their granddads, they're, they're their everything. They want to be just like them. They're, they're heroes. They're, they want to feel them. They want to wrestle with them. They want to feel their beard, feel their muscles. And nobody thinks anything of this. Everybody thinks this is exactly what a boy should do. Or a girl, if in, in a girl's case. And I don't remember ever feeling this way. Well, let me say, hardly ever feeling this way. Ever wanting that because I felt ambivalent about it. It was because of things that were, were happening. I don't want to go into a lot of details, but things that I perceived that the price was too great to draw close to the masculine that was available to me because it came at too great a price. It came with too many other things that were dangerous. So I had this protective stance and I didn't I didn't bond with it I saw it there it was there 
but it wasn't in here. And yet this book is saying, everyone is in process. And this attraction that males in, in their teenage or adult years have toward other males is God-given and perfectly natural. It's just misplaced or it's, it's sort of delayed in, in one's development. And I thought, that is it. That's my life. I couldn't believe this. And I thought, this nightmare that I've been living is, is over. Now God is just going to play it out. And I understood what Roy meant. Watch what God does. So I stopped railing against the fellowship. I accepted the sobriety definition. And in time, I made an amends to Roy and, I, and to Sylvia and, and others who never rejected me, always embraced me, but I always felt patronized and hated them for it. But suddenly, my heart was soft. And I knew that was love. So there was my new program. I got sober. I stayed sober from the first day. At first I got sober at them, but after this whole thing happened, this realization, I got sober because I believed that God had something better for me. And then I was reading it all over the literature. It was all there. Well, I'm going to fast forward. Around three years after this, I thought I heard God's voice tell me, uh, pick yourself up out of here. This is halftime of a meeting. Pick yourself up out, out of here, and we will do this together. And I was shocked, but I did. I left at halftime, and I thought, okay, God, that's your plan. And I left the program. People would be calling me saying, hey, we haven't seen you at a meeting. Well, you know, yeah, I'm taking a break. God and I have got business and whatever. By this time, I'd been in two other fellowships or three other fellowships. And so I left them too. And it was me and God. Well, you know, it shall be judged by its fruits. And the fruit was that I didn't know how long I'd stay out, but I stayed out eight years. And eventually, four years into this period, so three years plus three years of sobriety, then four years into this period, um, my father got ill and um, my mom had some uh, serious emotional problems around that. And I acted out in a public place once, but that was enough. I was 
white knuckling it to begin with. I didn't have a program around me. I wasn't working steps. My character defects were growing and uh, doing push-ups. So I kind of numbed out. And then I just went, spent another two years just in survival mode, like I had like I'd been in as a kid. Another thing happened to my closest friend got married. I felt abandoned, acted out on the way to his wedding. <clears throat> Another two years, dry drunk. I wasn't acting out, but I had never really understood what lust was. I had a sort of a, a vague understanding of it, but I didn't understand how I was engaging in lust. It was like the air I was breathing. I wasn't aware. Where is the oxygen? What, 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 what is this thing? In, out, in, out. You're not particularly aware of what you're doing. So the year 2000 came along and I started visiting sex shops, but saying to myself, you know, I can't touch, I got to stay sober. <laughs> so, you know, I think to myself, if I, somebody took a film of my life and said, okay, here, newcomer, here's, here's how, how to stay sober, you know, uh, I shudder to think about what would happen to to those people. And yet I was convinced that I was still sober. So I crawled finally. I was, I was desperate and I crawled into a, an essay meeting after all those years, eight years. And I said, okay, there, anyone who knows me is going to hate me. And, uh, but in any, in any case, I'm too desperate. I'm, I was more desperate then than I was the first time I came in, I think. And I had a check meeting right away and understood that I needed to start again like a newcomer, zero out my sobriety and learn the program. I had never worked my fourth step. I saw that thing as a doctoral dissertation that I was going to get to, you know, maybe before I died. And, uh, and it was a resentment. There was a person that I was resenting that I used to work with. And I thought, I am never going to admit that I had had a part in, in the fact that I hated her so much. So I got stuck in these places. And, uh, but God, in his mercy, helped me get unstuck. So I came back to the fellowship. And my sobriety is from that return back in the year 2000, by God's grace. I finally worked my steps, got a sponsor. Was I had the zeal that I... I I thought I had the first time, but this was the zeal of desperation. Like this time I didn't want to live because I knew there was a solution. I wasn't pursuing it. And it was going to be this or I saw where it was leading me to spiritual death. So this time I was all in and I was passionate about essay. In a, in a whole new way and became involved in service and um, became closer friends with people who really wanted what I wanted, uh, stayed close to the people who are long time sober, including Roy, and especially, especially Roy, because I saw that he, he was a radical. 
he was a radical. And the reason he was a radical is because Bill Wilson was radicalized by what happened to him. And I thought, you know, this is the way I feel right now. I needed a radical solution to a radically spiritual disorder, problem, whatever you want to call it. And, and I saw that we were, I was, and we were all following Roy in his walk out of this uh, prison house. So to the, this is 19, this is 2019. And I am grateful that Roy told me the following. He said, put everything on the table. All of your isms, all of your labels, all of the things you walked in with, all the things you thought you were, put it all on the table and God will give you those things that are of him. And the rest he will take into himself. And they, they are not anything you need to hold on to. He will take them and absorb them into himself, and you'll be set free. He says, especially your sexual identity. That comes on the table. Because we don't know. He said, we are all pseudosexuals. We don't know what it's like to have normal sexuality. We are defining ourselves by our sexuality. He said, we are human beings. Sexuality is a part of our life. It's not the defining attribute of our life. And I thought, hmm, that is, that's radical because my, my old way of thinking was because I always thought about sex and lust. That I'm either going to be this or I'm going to be that. Which, which subgroup do I belong to? How do I then, you know, how do I even fit within SA? Am I going to be part of this subgroup? Do I go to this subgroup's meetings? You know, uh, and Roy is like, no, we have one problem. It is lust. It's actually not even lust. That's that's the presenting problem. We all have the same problem, which is lust. I am my problem, but God is my solution. I'm not my solution. And so he was so clear on that, clear on mixed meetings, clear on that we need each other, that in the in essence, there was no difference from one person to another. And so this idea of putting everything on the table was I just welcomed it because anything I had hold, held on to, I realized that I was shedding it one after another and that I too felt like a pseudosexual, but that God was filling me with what I believe is the truth, which is that I was a man in process and I still am. And SA is a place where I can be with other men who are also in process, who come from the background that I come from, or, or come from a different background. But there is no difference. We're all somewhere on that path. We're trudging the road, or we're, we're running, running the race, I think is another analogy. And the last thing I want to say is that what Roy saw and perceived as had happened to Bill Wilson is all here in this, in the big book. 
and I want to recommend that you go back and read Abby Thatcher and Roy in Bill's story, starting on page nine and going through 13 or 14. Here are the kinds of things that Bill wrote when he met Abby, when he knocked on his door and he came to his house. I was amazed, he says. He stood there fresh skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. This is Bill looking at Abby Thatcher. Bill still drunk, Abby Thatcher having found God. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. He had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Here was something, here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. Roy was deeply affected by these words. Roy always talked about our disease being impossible, the recovery being impossible, and it's impossible just like it was for Bill and Evie by ourselves. And so it's that radical radicalization of the role of God in our recovery. It's central. It's everything. So if powerlessness over lust was, was the path in, it really almost doesn't matter anymore. As long as we're in and we can recognize that there is an intimacy with God, a relationship with God, a saving relationship that will save me in the moment of temptation, in every moment of temptation, and will save me from every temptation, not just lust temptation, a temptation to act out of my defects of character, a temptation to worry. All of this is, are things that I can bring to God. Say, God, this is not of you. Fear is not of you. Paranoia is not of you. Envy is not of you. Yes, I've got these things in me, but you are delivering me from them. And this is a radical way of living, being, freeing myself of all the labels that I thought I needed to place on myself that I was getting from outside, especially in, in today's world where everybody's looking to see, okay, where do I fit? What category am I in? What bucket do I go in? What pool do I swim in? And in essay, it's so important that we let go of those things, that the unity is about all of us being unified by the shipwreck of lust and that there's no distinction between any of us, regardless of the background, what, how we came in here, what our stories sound like. That's where the unity is. And by putting everything on the table, God gives back our lives. He transforms them. He said, we were reborn, Bill Wilson talks about. And I think Roy picked up on that. And that's the, that's the program that we inherited now, 10 years since he's been gone. And he said in that, if you look in the SA service manual, the very opening of it is a letter that he wrote to the fellowship right before he died, same year in 2009, in which he tells us, stand, contend for the truth, and basically watch that you don't become a ship sort of 
swaying in the waves, stand. And the truth is that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So that's my program today, is trusting God radically that he is making a miracle out of every one of our lives. And every story of ours is his story that he keeps writing again and again. And so I'm just so honored to be able to share some of my story with you guys and uh, send you all my love. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I really, uh, such touching words. And you, you have a lot of experiences and memories from you know, from the fellowship over many years, I I personally have a very um, I feel a very strong connection to Jess. Um, my sponsor, pretty much all of my sponsor line, uh, I've had three sponsors have been through the line of Jess. And do you, I just wanted to ask you if you have any memories of Jess, and also if you feel if you think that I, I've I've heard a lot already. Jess and we were very different personalities. Do you think that they that between the two of them, they basically were, um, you know, people kind of navigated either to one side or the other side, but not in, not in terms of like a, a, a you know a, a split, but I mean in terms of a personality because they were both pre preaching freedom from lust, real freedom from lust, real victory over lust. They were both saying the same message, but in very different ways. Um, and uh, for me, it's a very interesting topic just to hear people that met them both. Obviously, I. I didn't have the privilege of meeting either of them, and I've heard both of them speak at most of their talks. So just some memories of Jess, and maybe a few memories of Roy, and just a little discussion about, you know, my question in the sense of, you know, do you think that, the, you know, that our personalities navigate? Because I'm also kind of slightly more outgoing, and maybe that's why I navigate more towards Jess in that sense. Anyways, your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, um, I saw Jess at conventions. I didn't know him very well. I didn't have many interactions with him. Um, I was too busy in those early years, uh, angry at the fellowship, and then uh, just following Roy. I was aware of Jess. I was aware that there were some, you know, tensions and frictions and you know, ironing sharpening iron, iron sharpening iron. But steel, um, steel, steel. Uh, yeah, I I was um, uh, not as drawn to Jess as I was to Roy. I felt there's something there's something deep and in uh, un, untapped in Roy, and uh, so it just maybe I, I'm not sure. You just have a tendency to be drawn to one type of person versus another, and uh, I was drawn to Roy in in hatred of him, honestly. And then in in uh, in pursuit of of what he of his vision, because it was almost like he was pointing at a vision, and he was saying, "Look over there, that's where we're headed, that's where I'm headed," and uh, that was that was what I wanted, and so I was following what I what I perceived I wanted after a while, and so um, yeah, we can talk about personalities, I guess, but. I almost I'm, 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 would prefer to talk about the vision because it's the vision that drove this whole process for 30 years. And it's that vision that's, we've been now on that trajectory even 10 years after 
Roy's passing and his legacy. I won't say that he was the only one. He's not, but I mean, he's the author of our, our core literature and it's, it's what we identify with most closely, I think, the white book. And uh, even discovering the principles, I've been reading that tiny book right here. And it's a gem. And I, the reason I say it's a gem is because, you know, there's been a lot of talk on this marathon, uh, which has been wonderful, by the way, uh, about how do we grow? that there are millions and millions of sexaholics there and essay is needed like never before. How do we grow? What do we do? Do we grow uh, by magnitudes? Do we, you know, do a blast through social media and on the internet? And, you know, do we, do we anticipate thousands upon thousands of com you know, coming in like the uh, Saturday evening post article caused AA to just be, deluged or dear Abby, dear Abby letter deluging Roy and, and Iris and having to answer 800 letters suddenly. And he just, he talks in, in discovering the principles about how this is a retail operation, not a wholesale operation. And that it was at one on one, one sec, one alcoholic talking to another, Ebby and Bill, and then Roy and someone else and myself and someone else that is, it's the power of life giving life he talks about in here, Roy does. And that that can't be done uh, really any other way. And so it's so important, I think Nicholas was talking about this, that as soon as possible, a person get hooked up with an in-person meeting, if it's at all conceivable. I mean, I was in Russia for five years until recently in, in the Russian fellowship, and Russia is across 11 time zones. So that is not always possible. But <clears throat> what I think is really important, and this is something I'm going to be talking about in another um, panel, is how do we pass the message? And what, what takes versus what just sort of you get exposed to, but it doesn't really gel. And so that is that one-on-one -on -one experience that's been going on since Ebby showed up at Bill's doorstep and these Bill's eyes just went wide, wide open and he saw a miracle right before him. It's that life that gives birth to life that is what changes people. And I needed that change. I needed to see that spark, that glimmer in the next person's eye that I saw at my first essay meeting. And uh, I never forgot it. And even when I was out there for eight years, I never forgot it and I longed for it and I found it again. And I don't plan to leave anymore. I want to die sober, God willing. I just want to first off, thank you. Cause I mean, you know, to be known and to know, I know you now, I know you intimately and deeply. And man, that was just so powerful for me. I always thought I understood in my short five and a half years of what surrender was. But your description and the last speakers, your description of putting everything on the table, it's not just lust. It's not just defects. It's everything. And to allow God to take and absorb. And what I got that picture was is it's just whatever is left. It's just me and God. 
and that he will take what I'm willing to give him. And man, that is just so, so powerful. So I want to thank you for your share. And that was just, man, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this because it's just like you, you gave me vision that I think Roy gave you, but that's what I feel like tonight. I said, Oh, I get this. This is so much bigger than I ever dreamed. Um, we do have a question. How did the steps help you grow in this spiritual awakening? Mm. Well, my sponsor in another program says that recovery in 12-step program, well, recovery in life, I think, is ego reduction at depth. And that happened in the steps. But the first thing is that, you know, the whole recovery program pivots on step three. That, yes, I admit I'm powerless, and I have to also recognize that my life has become unmanageable, not just that I'm powerless over loss. That was easy, but it was the unmanageability of my life that was hard to, to get to. But then believing that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, I sort of knew that intuitively. I grew up with a vague sense of that. But the issue of trusting God was the scariest thing I could have ever imagined because it was off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And that sounds great, but if you're actually on the precipice of oblivion, what do you do? Are you really going to jump and believe that God's going to catch you? And this is true with every question that comes up in life. You lose your job. God, are you going to take care of me? Uh, somebody dies in the family. God, am I, are we going to be okay? Uh, a catastrophe happens, your house, you know, a fire in your house, anything can happen. But it's all a question of what do I believe? Do I believe God? Do I believe God to be true to his word? Do I believe what the big book says about uh, what happened to Bill when he saw Abby Thatcher, that he saw a miracle in front of him? And Roy talks about the impossibility of our recovery. But can I believe that God, we, that our God is the God of the impossible? Can I suspend my need to control my ego-driven fear of letting go and say, this is radical, but this is God living. This is God consciousness. This is, I'll call it kingdom living. Or do I want to keep, do I want to keep looking for crumbs on the floor? Or do I want to sit at the banquet table that's been set before me? That's the invitation. And I, when I first came, I thought, I just want to get sober. I don't want to change my, my label that I just barely spent four years trying to place on myself so I could identify with some group. Or uh, do I want to start you know, feeling like I can fit in somewhere? And, and Roy said, put it all on the table. God will take care of you. God will show you the man he created you to be and all of the other masks, all the other defenses, all the other assumed personae, he will take them because they're not of him. Those are things that you put on yourself to, to protect yourself, to, to give yourself hope, whatever it was, they were false. We need the truth. And he and Roy intones in, in this in, in that letter in the in the uh, SA service manual. He says, "We need to love each other in truth. 
That's what we do in SA, to the extent we can, love each other in truth. And the truth has come to me in waves, in radical waves, like it came to Bill that day with Evie Thatcher. He saw the truth in front of him, glistening, shining from that man's eyes. And that is what we're finding with each other. Every time we tell our stories in that vulnerable place where God's light shines through us, and I don't want to I don't want to look for crumbs anymore because the promises of this program are the banquet table. And Roy saw that and he's saying, contend for the truth. Let's contend together in love, especially in love for one another. Roy called himself a love cripple. When he'd go to meetings, he'd say, I'm a love cripple. My name is Roy. He knew the key was love. It's a hard word for us to say. We think it's another four-letter word. But it's the most important word. And I didn't know how to love. I thought that I would never love because I, when I told you something died inside me when that switch went off in my heart, I wasn't going to let anybody near me ever again. But this program and the steps opened my heart back up. And I will say, to answer the question, humbling myself to recognize that that fourth column of the fourth step, it's in the big book. It's kind of, it's not laid out as a fourth column. It's described as a fourth column, which is my role in my resentments. If I don't get that, if I don't recognize that I'm the author of all my resentments, I will keep blaming other people, point the finger, never understand recovery. And I will get stuck there. And I will sort of mix it up and, you know, uh, even it out. And well, maybe it's part of their, partly their fault, partly my fault. Their fault is none of my business. It's between them and God. But I need to own my stuff. And then I need to own my character defects without condemnation of myself, but in truth. And as I recognize that they're there, I can turn, I can put that on the table too and say, okay, God, it's time to take the garbage out again. It's Wednesday morning. And and especially in eight and nine, making amends to my father and then my mother, radical amends. Remember, I told you, I said I, at the age of at the age of uh, three that I said I had no parents, and I despised them. Radical, radical transformation. I can't bring this about myself. I can't transform myself. I can cooperate with the program and that God, that God of miracles that Roy talks about, that, that Bill talks about, that's where the transformation comes. So, but it was because I put myself in the game. I went and I, I got myself into the steps and I didn't try to uh, game the steps. I did maybe in the first time, but this time I wanted, I wanted the full effect and when my father, before my father died and before my mother died for, for several years beforehand, we went from having the worst relationship in the family to maybe having the best. Total healing. I never imagined. It was, it was like heaven on earth. And I, I, think, I think recovery is heaven on earth in a way. We're experiencing something that we could never imagine and that most people don't even and don't even uh, hope for.
they don't know it's available. Thanks for the question. Well, LA, thank you so much for your service tonight, man. We love you. We do. You're that was amazing. And, uh, We'd like to ask if you would uh, close us out with a program prayer of your choosing. I'd like to close with the seventh step. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you remove every defective character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.